Hello, this is Nicole Falcone, and you are listening to The Fifth Spot. This is the podcast where I try to decide who my fifth favorite film director is, possibly completely revamp my top five in the process. So I thought, and perhaps you did as well, listeners, thought that this day would not come ever. This episode of the podcast has been postponed once it was planned because of the Thanksgiving holiday, but then unplanned, put off an extra week because of a visit from COVID. That's right. It finally caught me after over two and a half years of being incredibly cautious. I finally got it. It's inevitable, I suppose. I had my shots and boosters and all that. So here I am almost fully recuperated. It did, it did come to me the symptoms on Thanksgiving. And so that as I'm recording, this is about two weeks ago and I feel good. I'm doing very well. Um, I still have a little gunk in my throat. I'm going to do my best to not clear my throat into the microphone too much. I have water here with me in addition to my wine. So I am hopefully going to do just fine. Bear with me. But other than that, yeah, I'm feeling good. Got that out of the way. So here I am. This is our 13th episode. Lucky 13. And we are at the halfway point, just to give you an idea of my plan, (laughs) my master plan. I do have one just as I desire such a thing in a television series. I want a Breaking Bad situation as opposed to a Lost. And I want to thank you again for joining me through first half of this podcast concept that I have brought to life. Thank you for being a part of it. If you want to get in touch with me, please email me at thefifthspotpod at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. You can also check me out at thefifthspotpod on Instagram. Also at Cinefem on Instagram. And I do want to let you know that I also, in addition to finally recording <laughs> this podcast, I have a new essay up on my website, Cinefem.com, C I N E P H E M M E.com. There is a new post up talking about horror and feminism and specifically the films Men and Barbarian. So please check that out. Also subscribe, rate, review, all of that good stuff. So this week we are going to talk about the one and only David Lynch. And I do mean one and only. David Lynch. If ever there was a 
singular filmmaker David Lynch is it. So I am just going to start by talking about Lynch's history before feature films and just kind of talking about him and his filmmaking vibe. Because if you are not familiar with it, well, honestly, if you're not familiar with him, there's nothing I can say to prepare you, but I'm going to try anyway. (laughs) So David Lynch was born in 1946. He was born in Missoula, Montana. He is a filmmaker, a painter, a visual artist, an actor, a musician, a writer, and a philanthropist. He is so many things. He studied painting before he began making short films in the late 1960s. He is a musician, as I said. Also, he's had a few studio albums. Crazy Clown Time is the one that I'm most familiar with, and it's a real good, moody, Lynchian vibe. And he has also done music and sound design for a lot of his films and series. And gosh, he's done photography and he's directed music videos. He's directed commercials. He did a Dior commercial. He also did a pregnancy test commercial in 1997 for Clear Blue Easy. I kid you not, I remember this commercial. It actually is a very Lynchian commercial. This is something that I will attempt to find and put up on Instagram for you to see if you are not familiar with it. It is just another wonderful curiosity in the story of Mr. David Lynch. He's also a avid practitioner of transcendental meditation. He has been doing it for years and years and years. He founded a foundation in 2005 that opens up transcendental meditation in schools for those experiencing homelessness, veterans, refugees. He really swears by it. It's a it's a huge part of who he is, which honestly, it uh, it tracks. So, like I said, he was born in Montana, but his father was a research scientist for the Department of Agriculture. So they moved around a lot. Some of the places that they lived were a Sandpoint, Idaho, Spokane, Washington, Durham, North Carolina, Boise, Idaho, and Alexandria, Virginia. So he spent a lot of time kind of all over, but, you know, not not in California, not in New York, but in America. So I think that is something that's very distinct and interesting and will come into play the more that we talk about his films. He was also a Boy Scout, an Eagle Scout. He was present because of this. He was present outside the White House at the inauguration of JFK, which also happened to take place on David Lynch's 15th birthday. So that is an interesting piece of Americana as well. So he was interested in painting and drawing when he was young. That was what he wanted to pursue. He didn't do great academically, but he was fairly popular with other students. After graduating from high school, he attended the 
School of Arts and Design in Washington, D.C. He then transferred to the School of the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. But he left after a year. He did not, he did not finish. It just wasn't his cup of tea. So instead, he decided that he wanted to travel around Europe for a few years with a friend. However, <laughs> they had hoped to train in Europe with an expressionist painter. But once they got there, they found that this fellow was not even available. So they actually wound up going back to the United States after like two weeks in Europe. So, you know, definitely a lot of dreams, a lot of schemes, but ultimately a little aimless, like many of us can't fault them for that. But just loving art, loving to paint, but feeling around trying to find his place in the world to facilitate that talent. So now we are getting to the real meat and potatoes of David Lynch. So in the 1960s, he moved to Philadelphia and he went to the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts and he preferred this college, he found the inspiration there. It was a much better experience for him. And that's where he got into a relationship with Peggy Reevy. They wound up getting married in the late 60s. The year after they got married, Peggy had a daughter. That daughter, by the way, is Jennifer Lynch, who is also a film director most infamously for Boxing Helena, which I would talk about more right now, but that seems like that is a whole other episode or a whole other podcast. <laughs> but I will say, if you are not familiar with Jennifer Lynch, if you are not familiar with Boxing Helena, look it up. That is a whole thing in itself. But Jennifer Lynch is his daughter. So the year after he and Peggy got married, they had her. Peggy was quoted as saying that he definitely was a reluctant father, but a very loving one. Hey, I was pregnant when we got married. We were both reluctant. That's very important. After Jennifer was born, the whole family moved to this neighborhood in Philadelphia where they could get a 12-room house, a huge house, at a low price. But the catch was it was in a very high-crime neighborhood. High crime, high poverty. And this is what David Lynch has said was the biggest influence in his whole life was this experience in the city with his wife and his daughter. He said, we lived cheap, but the city was full of fear. There was somebody, you know, shot down the street. They were robbed a couple of times. Their windows were shot out. A car was stolen. Basically, it was just it felt like danger and fear very intensely. He said there was violence and hate and filth. So, this is essential. So, around this time, David Lynch started making his short films while he was in school. And a few years ago, we actually went to see a David Lynch 
Film Fest. And uh, I had never really seen any of his short films, so that was a treat. They were just what I would expect. A lot of black and white, a lot of weirdness, a lot of really deep subject matter told as though it were a fever dream, basically. But some of the ones that, that we saw and that that he did around this time were the alphabet, which Peggy appeared in that one, and the grandmother about a boy who basically grows his grandmother from a seed to take care of him. That was pretty good. But the one that uh, really... <laughs> stands out that I really remember was called The Amputee, and it had Catherine Coulson, who Twin Peaks fans will also know as the Log Lady, which she would become later. But at the time, she she was in the short film, and she's a amputee who is in a hospital, maybe in her home, but she's writing a letter, and it's it's all about gossip, basically, and who did what to whom. Very humorous. And as she's writing this letter, her nurse, played by David Lynch, is trying to, like, unbandage her wounds and clean them, and it starts going awry, which is very disturbing, but also very funny, because she is just completely oblivious to it, and is just focusing on this letter. It's very odd. It's very dark. It's very funny. <laughs> and it's just one that really stands out to me. So he did a lot of these short films. And in 1971, he and his family moved to Los Angeles and he began studying filmmaking at the AFI Conservatory. He wound up there basically because AFI gave grants to filmmakers and he had received a grant from them. So then he went to the school and he loved it. He said it was just like a completely chaotic, you're on your own kind of thing, but he loved it. It was just this kind of madcap filmmaking. And this would lead to his first feature length film, which is called Eraserhead. And this is my second favorite David Lynch film. It is shot in black and white. It is the story of Henry, who is played by Jack Nance. Jack Nance later on would, would go on to be in Twin Peaks, and he had the most earnest eyes and sort of permanent pained beauty about him. Yeah, I just always responded very positively to him. Just really, really loved him. But anyway, he played Henry, who's uh, living in this dystopian industrial crapland, basically. His girlfriend gives birth to their baby. The baby is deformed doesn't really look like a baby. She leaves the baby with him and he has to take care of it. And during the filming, David Lynch and his wife did split up. It was amicable, but they split up and he wound up living on the set full time. This also was like, was a massive labor of love. It took four years to complete because he received uh, a grant again from AFI he received a $10,000 grant, but it wasn't enough to finish 
the film and they could not give him any more. So he wound up funding it, the rest of it from a loan from his father and also money that he earned from a paper route (laughs) that he took up. He delivered the Wall Street Journal. So there was a lot that went into uh, making this film. It finally was completed in 1976. It wound up kind of making the rounds, getting distributed in 1977. He did try to enter it into the Cannes Film Festival, but it was not selected. It was mostly thought to just be too weird. But once it started being distributed, it, it it wound up becoming an underground midnight movie alongside Pink Flamingos, the Rocky Horror Picture Show, Night of the Living Dead, that kind of thing. Stanley Kubrick also said that Eraserhead was one of his favorite films, which is pretty high praise, especially since David Lynch admired Stanley Kubrick very much. She was an influence on him. So that's pretty cool. But the film, it was very, very influenced by his time living in Philadelphia in the really horrifying conditions with his wife and his baby girl. So the movie obviously deals with themes of the industrial wasteland and of an unexpected pregnancy, the fear of fatherhood, of parenthood. Also, I, I would say very much, a, you know, sort of an existential crisis happening with Henry. But the the whole thing plays out, and this is going to wind up being a huge trademark with David Lynch, but it plays like it's a dream. It's very surreal. It deals with these types of themes that I talked about, and it it definitely has a plot. It ha- I mean, it has a plot outline, let's say, but it has all these surreal images and moments that are symbolic, and it, it feels like you're having a dream. So everything is very meaningful, but it isn't necessarily immediately evident what it means. So it's sort of a fractured kind of thing. Like, for instance, the radiator lady who sings in heaven, everything is fine. It's an iconic moment. It's just beautiful. So with the underground success of Eraserhead, David Lynch got quite a few fans because of this, including George Lucas. Also, very, very importantly, Stuart Cornfield, who was an executive producer for Mel Brooks, he loved Eraserhead. So he wanted to help get David Lynch's next film made. So Lynch asked him to to find him a script that someone else had written that he could direct because he wanted to get financing for this film. And so Cornfield found a few different films, and supposedly David Lynch actually chose The Elephant Man based solely off the title, which (laughs) makes sense. But also, that's pretty funny, because it actually wound up being a pretty good fit. The Elephant Man was the story, the true story, or at least based on the true story of Joseph Merrick. They changed the name to John Merrick in the film. But Joseph Merrick, and he was a a severely deformed man in Victorian London who was in a a freak show, and he was taken in by a a surgeon. He was incredibly intelligent, and, and he was just painfully 
horrifically deformed and it's it's a yeah it's a really amazing story and it's a, it's a very sad story but what happened was is that david lynch wanted to change a few things even though it was based on truth just to you know make it play better make it cinematic but he needed mel brooks's permission because it was his production company Brooks Films. So Mel Brooks watched a screening of Eraserhead. He thought it was insane and fantastic and said, you're in. <laughs> John Hurt wound up playing, playing John Merrick and Anthony Hopkins played the doctor. It's actually the first David Lynch film that I ever saw. I saw it when I was a kid because my mom was a fan of it and I haven't seen it in a long time, but I have seen it quite a few times. It's a very sad film, but it's it's really beautiful, really well done. It got several Oscar nominations, including Best Director, and it is actually one of David Lynch's most conventional films, which says a lot about him when The Elephant Man is one of your most conventional films. But it, even though it, it, it does have surreal aspects, it's filmed in black and white, but it definitely, if you look at his whole canon it's one of those ones that looks like it doesn't completely belong but it's a it's a wonderful film and it was a really great choice it was a really great stepping stone to studio films the first of these films would be dune which was an adaptation of the 1965 sci-fi novel by Frank Herbert. Now, I am going to stop right here and say that I have never read the book. I hardly remember Lynch's movie. I have not seen the new Dune that I hear is a much better adaptation. I don't know anything about Dune. So my personal opinions about it don't have any. But the David Lynch adaptation was a commercial and critical failure. It was considered oh, just not a good film. Now, here's the thing. The studio did a, a final cut that they thought would make it more palatable. They wanted like a Star Wars kind of thing. Basically, they completely butchered what David Lynch had done. Now, what David Lynch actually did, was it better? Who knows? But the fact is, is that what came out was not what he had intended. And in fact, he tried his hardest to disown the film because it was not, it did not represent what he had wanted to do. So after that, luckily, since he had just had a bomb, he was still contractually obligated to produce two other projects for the studio. Originally, they planned to do a sequel to Dune, but that obviously got scrapped after that fiasco. So because he was contracted to do a couple more films, even though he had just done this high profile dead, he was able to finally film a project that he had been contemplating for like a decade. And that was just his own vision 
and really represents David Lynch. 1986's Blue Velvet. Now, Blue Velvet is my favorite David Lynch film. It has been for a long time. It remains so. I believe Blue Velvet is David Lynch's masterpiece. It is the story of Jeffrey, played by Kyle MacLachlan. He lives in North Carolina, and he's going to college, and he finds an ear in a field, just a severed ear. He winds up investigating it with his friend Sandy, played by Laura Dern, and he winds up pulled into this criminal underbelly that is represented in the form of Frank Booth, portrayed by Dennis Hopper. He is this horrifying and fascinating character, just amazingly portrayed by Dennis Hopper. So the film has a 50s sort of nostalgic feel to it. It has really bright primary colors, blue and reds, and very vivid, especially like the opening sequence. It's just very beautiful, very striking, but then really off-putting, very idealistic and surreal, and then has this sort of seedy thing that comes up, as does within the whole film. Also, the use of music in this, um, I think... Blue Velvet is where that really starts, where we just really see David Lynch using music in an interesting way. He obviously uses the song Blue Velvet and Roy Orbison's In Dreams. Now, I can't hear this song now without thinking of this movie. And the sequence that it appears in is a disturbing sequence, but it is, again, a very beautiful sequence. It's haunting and gorgeous and also just really upsetting, which pretty much sums up David Lynch. Now, I believe Blue Velvet is a coming-of-age story, a loss-of-innocence story. I think that it is a near-perfect one in that Kyle MacLachlan's character, Jeffrey, is this very naive youngster him and Laura Dern, they have this very innocent uh, sort of tentative courtship, and it's it's all very sweet. And the further he goes into this world, that includes Frank and Isabella Rossellini, who is having her strings pulled by Frank, so to speak, the more corrupted Jeffrey becomes. And one of the things that I think is a, a great visual tell of this um, loss of innocence is that Laura Dern's character in in her room, she has a poster of Montgomery Clift. Now, Montgomery Clift was a heartthrob in his day. He was so much more than that. I've talked about him before. I've written about him. He's a favorite of mine. Amazing, amazing actor. One of the greatest actors. But he was, yeah, he was he was easy on the eyes and he was quite quite the heartthrob, probably much to his chagrin. But he ended up being in a car accident that did hurt his face. He wound up having to have some work done on his face. And so 
in later films, he does look different than he did before. And it's, he's not as pretty as he was. So in Blue Velvet, Laura Dern's character has this poster of Montgomery Clift on her wall, just as though, oh, look, she has this heartthrob, you know. But the poster is of him post-accident. So it's a it's a post-accident picture of Montgomery Clift. I can tell when I look at it because I just can tell that he looks different than he did before. And so to me, that's really interesting that they chose to have this poster of a post-accident Montgomery Clift because he was no longer that perfect looking thing that everyone loved. He was more flawed and he also had a lot more demons that surfaced after that point. And so to have that represented in this picture to me shows the idealism and and the the eating away, the slow eating away of that just in this representation of this poster. So that's always struck me. I think that's a really great example of the types of things that David Lynch does to make his point. I absolutely love it. Now, Blue Velvet was definitely more controversial than, say, The Elephant Man. It was not as accessible, but it is quintessential David Lynch, and it definitely had a mixed reaction, but ultimately it did receive a lot of critical success, and it did earn David Lynch his second Oscar nomination for Best Director, which is a pretty great feat for a film that is as unique a vision as Blue Velvet is. So after that, there were two projects sort of simultaneously going. His next film, Wild at Heart, he was working on at the same time that he was producing, writing, and directing Twin Peaks. So we'll start with Wild at Heart. This film starred Nicolas Cage, classic Nick Cage, had Laura Dern and her real-life mother, Diane Ladd. It is another very bold, saturated, beautiful presentation of a film. The Wizard of Oz, Elvis theme happening has the two kind of crazy lovers on the road. This film was always another of my favorites of his. I loved it when I first saw it and watched it quite a few times, but have to admit, I have not seen it in a long time. I really wanted to uh, rewatch it before recording, but I had a horrible time finding it. You cannot stream it anywhere. I couldn't get it through the library even. It is extremely difficult to get your hands on. I don't know why, but I'm hoping that that changes because I really think that uh, Wild at Heart should be something that not only I can view again, but people can view for the first time. So since I did not get to revisit it, it remains in my memory as this really gorgeous, lush, wild film <laughs> that I really loved. And if you do find a way to see it, I highly, highly recommend it. So at the same time, he was producing 
Twin Peaks. So Twin Peaks was that zeitgeist of the early, early 90s, who killed Laura Palmer. That's just a line that people know. Twin Peaks was a series that was unlike anything that had ever been on TV before. And honestly, anything since. There's a lot of shows that owe much to Twin Peaks, but there is no show that is really comparable to Twin Peaks. It was very singular vision. It's about Twin Peaks, this little town in Washington with a bunch of kooky characters. And Laura Palmer, played by Cheryl Lee, right off at the bat, is found dead. And that becomes the driving force of the show is finding out what happened to her, who killed her, and basically learning all about her through these other characters um, in Twin Peaks. And Sherilyn Finn played Audrey, who I just love. She's one of my favorite characters on the show. That really catapulted Sherilyn Finn, Lara Flynn Boyle, Piper Laurie, really, really great in it. And Richard Boehmer, who from West Side Story, he played Tony. This is a complete 180, and he's fantastic, as is Russ Tamblin, who was also in West Side Story. There's tons of people in it, but most certainly not least would be Kyle MacLachlan again as Agent Dale Cooper. He's an FBI agent who comes to Twin Peaks to try and solve the Laura Palmer murder. He loves cherry pie. He loves coffee. He is quirky. He fits right into this strange little town and this series was just, it was just so great. It's not for everybody. I have assured more than one person who has said, I just don't get it. I can't get into the Twin Peaks thing, that this does not make you a bad person. Now, if you can really dig Twin Peaks, you're a pretty cool person. The whole first season basically was based on this Who Killed Laura Palmer, and that's what drove it. And in the second season, David Lynch got a lot of pressure from from the network to solve this mystery. Enough is enough. People want to know. Ultimately, he did. And of course, it kind of wrecked the show because that mystery was gone. It did continue after that through the second season. And I actually think it had a lot of cool stuff happening in it. But ultimately, it was canceled after the second season. There was a crazy cliffhanger that we all just had to live with until about 25 years later, in 2017, when Twin Peaks returned on Showtime for, I believe it was like 18 episodes. And it was this really groundbreaking, astonishing vision of David Lynch with just some of the most imaginative, bizarre, terrifying, beautiful all of the above scenes and images and concepts in this return. And it was simultaneously extraordinary and infuriating. And some things were very frustrating. It did bring 
some pieces to very interesting conclusion, but for the most part, there was not really a conclusion or an answer that we'd been waiting for for decades. All I can say about that is that David Lynch doesn't give a good goddamn about structure or coherence. (laughs) You know, he's just out here doing his own thing, revolutionizing television, and it is what it is. But going back to the 90s and early 2000s, post the original Twin Peaks series, in 1997, he did Lost Highway, which has a killer soundtrack that is produced and arranged by Trent Reznor. He and David Lynch would go on to collaborate a bit more, and this soundtrack is exceptional. Probably my favorite part of the movie. The first time I saw the movie, I found it quite striking and incomprehensible. The second time I watched it, I found it even more striking and still incomprehensible. (laughs) I have seen it. I've seen it several times, and I I definitely don't think it's the strongest entry in David Lynch's canon. However, visually, it's just really interesting, like most of his stuff is. I keep saying that his films and television are like dream state, but they are. They don't necessarily have a linear thing happening. They don't always make sense things that happen don't make sense and make perfect sense at the same time, just like it does when you're having a dream. But Lost Highway, I think, probably is the most like that. It has Bill Pullman and Patricia Arquette and really, really frightening Robert Blake, who, I mean, at this point, that's that's just a given. Honestly, I can't explain it, but it's an interesting film, and I still enjoy it, even though I don't really know what's going on. And then in 1999, he took a turn and did The Straight Story with Richard Farnsworth and Sissy Spacek, and this film was rated G. It's a wonderful movie. It's a beautiful movie. It is not anything like any other David Lynch film. It's the story of this man who takes this tractor and goes and tries to get to his brother who has had a stroke, who he's kind of on the outs with. It was Richard Farnsworth's last film. Sadly, he he committed suicide not very long after that. He was 80 years old, I believe, and he was suffering from a terminal cancer diagnosis. Very sad, but this was his last film and a wonderful last film to have. Another film that got some Oscar nominations. And then in 2001 came Mulholland Drive. Now Mulholland Drive is an interesting one for me because I think that that one has probably become one of his most beloved films. It has a story behind it. Originally, it was a television pilot. It was uh, supposed to be another television show that he was going to do, and he filmed the pilot, and it didn't get picked up. But rather than wasting it, he decided to make it into a film. So the first half of the movie, maybe like three quarters of the movie, is the pilot. And then the last quarter or so is 
basically added on to make into a movie. And the first time I saw it, I just thought that seemed exactly like what it was. I didn't love it at first. I still wouldn't say that I love it, but I appreciate it. I have a great appreciation for it that I didn't have at first because I thought that it felt just like that, like a, a pilot that seemed like a, a whole creature and then just this sort of tacked on craziness at the end. However, the more times I see it, the more I get out of it. It is actually, I think, saying a lot about Hollywood and identity, and it's it's very interesting, and it gave us Naomi Watts, who was pretty much unknown at that point, and it shot her into the stratosphere, and she is wonderful. I still wouldn't rank it as high as probably other people would, but I, I do think that it is a solid, solid film. And then after that, he only did one other film in 2006, Inland Empire, and that was the last film that he has done. He's kind of embracing all these other amazing things that he is amazing at. So some of David Lynch's influences, Fellini, Godard, Ingmar Bergman, Werner Herzog, Hitchcock, Polanski, Kubrick, as I mentioned before, Billy Wilder. Sunset Boulevard is one of his favorite movies, as is Lolita. Kubrick's Lolita and Hitchcock's Rear Window. A couple of my faves, too, if you'll recall. Carnival of Souls is another one. And some of the recurring themes, pieces to understanding David Lynch, or at least appreciating him more, is his sort of jigsaw puzzle of ideas. Again, dreams. Dreamlike imagery, dream logic and structure, and the subconscious. Another theme that he constantly explores is industry, machinery, the underbelly, crime, violence, darkness, deformity. He also has a lot of like duality, especially with his female characters, uh, like Laura Palmer and her, her cousin. Maddie, both played by Cheryl Lee in Twin Peaks. In Lost Highway, Patricia Arquette plays a dual role. In Mulholland Drive, there's a duality going with Naomi Watts and Laura Herring. It's it's a constant thing, possibly brought on by his love for Vertigo. He also tends to incorporate supernatural qualities, but ultimately he is an enigma. He's endlessly interesting. If you don't have a lot of experience with, with David Lynch, I would watch Blue Velvet first. If you want to continue from there, do Eraserhead, do Wild at Heart, do Mulholland Drive, and check out Twin Peaks. These are the essential David Lynch. So, all right, we are going to kind of step out of out of Weirdville, at least for now. And that's going to do it for David Lynch. Again, our 13th episode, we're halfway through. Thank you so much for joining me and for your patience in me releasing this episode. Our next episode is going to be in two weeks. And we are going to be looking at two people. We are going to be looking at both Cameron Crowe and Richard Linkletter. So 
Come on back next time. Talk at you later. 